Chris and Chris, a journey through the history of Simeon Cinema. I'm Christian Larson. I'm Chris Mattiello. And today's film, episode one, is King Kong from 1933, pretty much the granddaddy of all monkey movies. To start with, this movie is what was known as a jungle film, which was popular in the silent film era. An adventurer of some sort would go into the jungle, he'd meet various beasts, He'd come across the big bad at the end and then make it back with some sort of treasure. It was uh, it was kind of a trope back in the day. And King Kong was one of the first big blockbuster movies. And for that, they wanted to make a jungle film. And that's what they got. Now, Chris, you were doing a little bit of research on a movie that may have inspired this and came a little bit before. Uh, yeah, I found some information about uh, a movie called uh, Ingagi, I believe is how it would be pronounced. It came out a few years before King Kong. It was a fake documentary. Uh, you did some research as well. How unbelievably blown away by how racist, even for the time, were you? It's crazy. And the one thing I read about it was that it depicted black women having sex with jungle apes and having offspring with them. That was like the crux of the whole film. Yeah, that was the point of it. It's about... 70 minutes of a fake documentary. Um, you know, when people talk about, like, Cannibal Holocaust as, like, the most disgusting fake found footage movie, people should start pointing back at this because at least Cannibal Holocaust has a hell of a soundtrack. This is just yeah. gross in, in every single way I could possibly imagine. Yeah. King Kong is basically a toned-down version of this. It came before the movie codes, which were a forerunner of the MPAA ratings, and as a result, it's a pretty brutal movie. It's pretty violent and, and shocking at parts, especially for the time. And when the code was enacted, a lot of it was toned down or censored. And the special effects, of course, were groundbreaking for the time. The filmmakers petitioned the Academy to nominate it for a special effects award, but there were no special effects awards in 1933. In fact, the category wouldn't be introduced for many years later. So let's discuss the movie, and joining us to discuss the movie is the uh, impresario of the Cage Club podcast network, Mr. Oh. Mr. Joey Lewandowski. So thank you for joining us. Sure, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be on your first episode. <laughs> We're honored to have you. So the movie begins with an overture, uh, and that kind of caught me off balance right there. You don't really think of movies having overtures. Joey, you, you saw a movie recently that had an overture. Yeah, The Hateful Eight. So I was calling this movie The Hateful Ape. I was not expecting there to be an overture. And it's like it's like a five-minute musical intro before you see anything, just in the old-timey throwback to cinema. This is definitely a throwback because movies, as we know them today, were just starting out, and people were used to live theater. And in live theater, you got an overture. And later on, when they introduced the cast, they're referred to as the players. So there is very much these remnants of the theatrical tradition. The beginning even has that iconic old RKO radio tower logo, which I will always associate with Dr. Frankenfurter climbing up at the end of Rocky Heart Picture Show. But it is this iconic image that's associated with old Hollywood. And it begins with a Bible quote. It actually is a, a proverb, I believe. It's an old Arabic proverb. Which I discovered is actually completely made up. Oh. <laughs> yep. That's just some thirties, some thirties like film uh, pattern. I, I love that about the the old timey Hollywood where they just made shit up and didn't matter. Everyone just got away with it. <laughs> 
The quote is, And lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty, and it stayed its hand from killing, and from that day it was as one dead. So that's pretty much saying that beauty subdued the beast. And the theme of this movie is that beauty is the downfall of everyone. Yeah, Carl Denham will repeat that thesis several times throughout this movie. He's really going to hammer it home throughout. (laughs) He's such an asshole. He's such an asshole. So the film opens up and a theatrical agent is meeting with Denham on this boat in New York City. He meets Driscoll, who is a grouchy first mate. It sets it up that nothing impresses him. He's not a happy man. His heart needs to be softened. And it will. The theatrical agent meets with Driscoll and Denham and the captain of the ship, and they discuss Denham's next outing. I feel like the whole important thing of this outing is that they meet a woman, and bringing a woman on board is the biggest scandal, is the biggest problem that the ship has ever seen. I feel like nobody in this movie, almost from start to finish, is happy about anything. And they're all just looking for things to complain about. And the beginning of the movie, this next venture that they're going out on, they're going to go film on this island where there's this wall that they don't know what's behind it. But they need a woman, and nobody's happy about that. Denim catches her basically trying to thieve some fruit off of a fruit stand. And it's the one reminder that this movie really gives that this is taking place at the height of the Great Depression. It may not seem that way since a large part of it is occurring on an island or at a large playhouse where everyone's in a tux and stuff, but this movie is taking place during the Depression, and I think that is worth noting. Well, the first place they go to find a woman seems like a homeless shelter or seems like a food pantry or food bank or something, and he's just sort of like scouting out the talent online, right? Yeah, Denim, right off the bat, he's got this mysterious project, but he can't get any women to agree to it sight unseen. So he decides, being the horrible, irredeemable scum, bag that he is he decides to go to a like a, a homeless shelter for women where they're lined up to get food there's a line one of them says uh what's there to eat and the other one says soup tonight coffee and stinkers in the morning Ooh. Uh, i don't know what stinkers are it must be some obscure 30s term for bagels or something i don't know but yeah he's trolling for desperate women at a homeless shelter and that's where he meets the beautiful Fay ray who will end up being the star well he doesn't really meet her there right he goes to that fruit stand and i'm not even sure do you think that she's trying to steal the fruit or she's just sort of feeling it like the guy like gets on her immediately he's like hey i caught you i caught you but i'm not sure that she's necessarily trying to steal it or maybe i'm just trying to give her the benefit of the doubt i think she has to be so that they can have this implication of like him grabbing someone who just absolutely is desperate to have this role who needs to basically pull herself out of the condition and it it really drives home how no one wants to do uh this guy's dangerous weird ass movies he doesn't really follow any regulations he's uh he's kind of a real piece of shit when it comes to filmmaking and yeah it makes sense that no actress would be willing to join up with him just based on reputation. So I think she has to be in a very low place. There's a line later where the guy who falls in love with her is worried about what he's going to have Denim make her do. And she says something along the lines of like, after the chances he took on me, I'm willing to do whatever. So I guess it is like he rescued her. He gave her food and a place to sort of be, and she's willing to do whatever to sort of reciprocate him. Yeah, and he pretty much vouched for her when she was accused of of stealing he says to the shopkeeper here's a buck scram and i i'm just a sucker for any time someone says the word scram (laughs) but because he might have saved her a night in jail 
she already owes him right off the bat. And he immediately offers her the, the showbiz role of a career, of a lifetime. So she's totally on board, literally and figuratively. She boards the ship, and that's where she meets the ever-grumpy Driscoll. And, uh... <laughs> I hate Jack Driscoll. <laughs> He's such a dick. And I know it's like the 30s, and that sort of cool uh, misogyny was the thing. But he's not even a great character. He's barely a hero throughout this movie at all and really takes care of herself almost the entire way through. And he's just kind of along for the ride, lucky to be surviving and being a real dick. He's not even the main like male protagonist. It's really no. Carl. Driscoll, all of the romantic scenes between the two humans are the, the worst parts of this movie by far. <laughs> when she meets Driscoll, not only does Driscoll accidentally smack her in the face, but they're having a conversation and she's like, oh, you're not too fond of women, are you? And he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's just saying that, like, of course I'm not. Like, why would I be? But he's also saying it like, why would anybody be fond of women? Like, not only am I not fond of women, but like, why would anybody? Like, women are the worst. And that yeah. seems like the whole mentality that everybody in this ship has. Like, one guy says, you think I want to haul a woman around? And then another guy says, they're a nuisance. Another guy says, women can't help but be a bother. They're just made that way, I guess. Like, that's at least two or three different people saying these horribly offensive, misogynistic things. And just like, everyone's like, yeah, women suck. Like, we're just a boat full of dudes just want to do dude stuff on the water yeah well i mean on one hand i can see how like a bunch of guys doing dangerous intricate work on the deck of a ship might not want to have a high maintenance 1930s woman around just like wandering around the deck for practical reasons but also it's the first of of many many horribly horribly problematic things about this movie i don't like to throw around the word problematic i feel like it's thrown around way too much these days but just about every way there is to be problematic, this movie is. Well, look, I mean, remember what happened when they let women on the Titanic? Icebergs are attracted to menstruation, just like bears. <laughs> <laughs> the big thing that sets up, I guess, the conflict of the movie is that even though none of these people want to be around women, the director, Denham, says that the public wants a pretty face to look at and pictures need a love interest and the public wants a girl. So he's a filmmaker, he just knows that he needs a girl and that he's not happy with it either, but like that's why she has a reason to be there. You never had a woman in any of your other pictures. Why do you want one in this? Holy mackerel, do you think I want to haul a woman around? Then why? Because the public, bless them, must have a pretty face to look at. Sure, everybody likes romance. Well, isn't there any romance or adventure in the world without having a flapper in it? Well, Mr. Denham, why not take a picture in a monastery? Yeah. Makes me sore. I go out and sweat blood to make a swell picture, and then the critics and the exhibitors all say, if this picture had love interest, it would gross twice as much. All right. The public wants a girl, and this time I'm going to give them what they want. I would suggest that that's probably also Marion Cooper's maybe uh, some meta commentary that he plugged into the script because it just it seems a little on the nose. I would I could imagine that that would be something that that Selznick definitely could have said to him at you know at the back lot of RKO Pictures at, at this time. Yeah, like we need a pretty dame in the picture, maybe a blonde. They actually said they wanted a blonde specifically so that the contrast with King Kong's black fur would stand out more. Correct, and uh, Fay Ray is a uh, is a brunette, so she's wigging it up throughout this entire film. <laughs> she's wearing a wig. Uh, so she's on the ship, she's feeling a little left out, but she strikes up an unlikely friendship with the Chinese stereotype cook, Charlie, and his monkey Iggy. 
this being Monkey Club and all, I don't want to breeze over the fact you mentioned Iggy. Iggy is the first monkey in Monkey Club. I mean, he's not, it's not King Kong. We're not at the King Kong part of the movie yet, but Iggy pops your Monkey Club cherry, I think. Iggy will probably be our mascot from here on out. So, Chris, tell me a little bit about Anne and Driscoll's first big, deep conversation on the boat. Oh, well, it's it's that early cinema thing where you fall in love the moment you meet somebody. He has, like, this really awkward 12-year-old boy way of flirting with her. He says something along the lines of, like, well, uh, uh, do you think, like, maybe you uh, would like me? That's the gist of their entire romance because every scene that they're in and they're, ha- they're sharing dialogue is the worst scene of King Kong. This movie, <laughs> this movie is paced brilliantly. For an hour and 40, this movie moves at an incredible clip. It's unrelenting in its action. It's, I think, maybe the first perfectly paced film. But these scenes hurt. They drag down a lot of it. I was telling Larson before we started that the movie is an, like an hour 40. The new King Kong, which you guys will get to at some point, and I will be back for, and I, 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 I've seen the new King Kong, but not in a long time. I don't think since theaters. That movie is like three hours long, and you don't see King Kong in that movie until like an hour 40 in. So this movie covers the entire arc of the story in the time that the new movie just takes to set up the monkey and like getting to King Kong. So it's kind of crazy. Like it does move along at a brisk pace, but I do agree. Every time they're talking, it's just like, oh my God. Yeah, there are very few wasted moments in this movie because like you said, at an hour 40, you expect something this epic to be an epic length, but they managed to pack it all in. But the requisite love interest scenes and going back to us talking about Denim's meta commentary about having to sandwich in a romance, they really slow it down. Iggy may be the first monkey we see, but Driscoll is basically an ape when it comes to interacting with women. Um, (laughs) He's, he's, yeah, he's just lots of uh, one syllable words, lots of us and ums. And I believe he gets to make out there by saying, do you like me or something along those lines, something you would write uh, on your notebook in uh, as a 12 year old with checkboxes next to it. He brings down the entire movie and Carl Denham. I mean, man, he steals every scene he's in. He's just so self-assured. He's just this like self-assured douchebag. His confidence is really his biggest characteristic. He reveals to the crew that they're going to Skull Island, which right off the bat should be a little ominous. But everyone's strangely okay with it. It's also an island that's not on any map, right? That he's like, you're not going to be able to find this anywhere. I had to talk to this Norwegian guy. He tells this story about how he bought the map off a, a man in a Singapore club that got it from a dying Norwegian soldier. And it makes me want to see, like, the backstory of... of denim like i want to see where he's been he's one of those old like indiana jones style guys who traveled the world and knows 30 languages it's probably a remnant of the original script where he is a big game hunter and they changed that and i think that's a great call because having him be a filmmaker and an adventurous filmmaker at that makes him a more sympathetic character it could have been really easy for them to make denim a complete piece of shit who wants to go hunt king kong who wants to abuse the natives but he's really more of a documentarian than anything else and despite a couple of times where he dips into selfish is kind of a light word for it but um they could have very easily made him a a heel and the fact that they didn't i think shows a lot of restraint that movies at this time weren't showing So they have a screen test with Anne before they reach the island where Denim 
is asking her to look scared, to scream, to hold her arms up in front of her eyes, which is basically what she'll be doing for the rest of the movie after she meets King Kong. <laughs> it's probably worth talking about Faye Ray here. There's a lot of subtle acting in the scene that is really well done. I imagine Faye Ray put a lot of herself into this scene and screen tests that she had done in her past. And I mean, she's got a hell of a scream on her, man. First scream queen, I think probably we can crown her that. I would agree with that. I think that she's pretty great in this. I don't know if it's just because she's the only woman in this movie, but I feel like she's standing apart in a lot of ways from most of the other men who are sort of just of the era and kind of rough around the edges. So we, we've all fallen in love with Faye Ray, with, with Anne. And they decide to go to the island. They land on the island. They bring guns and gas bombs. They're used a handful of times to knock out some creatures. It's good visual storytelling. And that's something that I noticed this movie does fantastically. There's a couple scenes on the boat where they just have a bunch of guns in a rack leaning against the wall. And it's just like, yeah. you're, you're seeing this as he's talking about going to this island and filming this movie. And they're not, they do draw attention to this idea he's got explosives at some point, but just... Before they do that, you see these guns and it's just like, okay, this is this is what's going to happen. Like, this is telling you a lot about what Denim has done and what he is planning to do uh, without saying a word. And uh, this movie's full of great visual storytelling that I'm sure I'll bring up uh, throughout the rest of this episode. But this this is probably the first instance of that. What I also like, and it's not the visual storytelling that you just mentioned, Chris, but what, other, what I also like about them preparing for the island is that when they're in, wherever the navigator is on the boat, and they're like, have you ever heard of Kong? And then they're saying if he's a superstition or a god or a spirit, and he's neither beast nor man, he's something monstrous. And like, you know that there's like something here. And if you don't know who King Kong or what King Kong is, you know that there's just like this something that they're going to run into. But I like that, that he's bringing this heavy firepower because he knows that he's going up against something big. And even though they don't know what it is, I like that sense of it's this terrifying thing that they're going to encounter sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I remember thinking that as well. Like, they're talking about Kong, but they don't know what it is except that it's a giant force to be reckoned with. And I feel like it probably was impossible to go into a screening of King Kong and not know that it was a giant monkey. I'm sorry, ape. But... If you didn't know what King Kong was, I feel like that would have made the reveal all that much more interesting. It kind of makes me wonder how the movie was marketed back in 1933. Because on the Blu-ray, they have a theatrical trailer for when they re-release it. They didn't have a year, and I don't know when they re-released it. But in that trailer, King Kong's all over the place. Like, you see in the entire trailer. And so by that point, everybody knew what King Kong was. And so they weren't necessarily hiding him. They wanted to get people to see the movie. But I wonder, you know, building up, like, was it something like Cloverfield, you know, where there's like this, there's a thing and you don't know what it is. You know what I mean? Like, there's something that they're going to see, or do people know going in that there's a giant monkey on an island? I wish that's what it was, but I'm pretty sure that the monkey figured pretty heavily into their promotional stuff. I mean, they had giant King Kong heads outside the theater. I looked at pictures of the premieres. And the advertising was King Kong on the on the Empire State Building, illustrations of him. I knew very little about King Kong going into this. I, I didn't see the new one. I haven't seen the 1976 one, which we'll get to. And I didn't see this one. All I knew was that he climbs the Empire State Building. And I didn't really realize how little of that it accounted for in the story. Most of it is the island, you know, the last 
10, 15 minutes is New York City. But yeah, I think audiences knew it was a monkey, like, right off the bat. So they get to the island, and they stumble upon a, a tribal ritual. And, uh, oh boy, this is, um, you brought up hashtag problematic before, and uh, I think we're going to have to slam on the brakes here and have a little little bit of a discussion on this scene. Um, picture the most offensive caricature of an African tribe you can think of, and that's what what you get in King Kong. Maybe times it by a hundred. It's crazy. It's just like, unfortunately, the 1930s version of what third world black people were like. The chief actually is played by a guy named uh, Noble Johnson because uh, at the same time that they were filming this, they were also filming The Most Dangerous Game, which has a bunch of the same cast. And he would actually eventually go on to be a big proponent and activist of African-Americans in films playing roles that weren't just these kind of racist caricatures, which is, hmm. which is pretty cool. So there's this big dance going on. And if you're able to look past the obvious... 30s racism of it, the spectacle of it all, hundreds of people dancing around in front of this wall and this giant gate, which obviously are there, like someone built them. They were actually uh, reused from another film, a biblical epic. You know, someone built these giant walls and this giant gate. That would not be done today. That would be uh, computer generated. And it probably was in the Peter Jackson version. Uh, so then the, the chief comes down along with his witch doctor and they have a little talk. What's that? He says, look at the golden woman. Yeah, blondes are scarce around here. Alam Apakeno. Kong wa bisa. Kao bisa por Kong. It's a gift for Kong, he says. Good Lord. Yama. Wants to buy her. He's offering to trade six of his women for Anne. You got her into this denim. Tida. Tida. Malem ani rota nahi. And they respectfully decline and go back to the ship. And that's where Driscoll says, like, oh, I think I might love you. And there is a great exchange here uh, where she says, Jack, you hate women. And he says, I know, but you aren't women, <laughs> which is so romantic. I don't want to call it a meat cute, but it's kind of a meat cute. Like, it just this is not the way that things happen. And it's strange. I, mean, I hate that character. <laughs> you don't drop the L word on your third conversation, especially if the first time you met, you explained that you hated women right off the bat. But, you know, the 30s. I'm actually kind of, not not to bring up other movies we're going to be doing, but I mean, I'm sure we'll be, when we do these episodes, we'll be doing a lot of comparing to, to this, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. But I'm very interested to see how Adrian Brody plays this role. I have no idea who plays it in the 70s version, but I'm interested to see if they, if the one good thing that those movies might do is improve on this character in some way. Yeah, I'm interested to see what the subsequent versions of this film do with these characters, these archetypes. I don't remember much about it. I remember, because Jack Black obviously plays Denim. He's the main guy. I remember him being... Sort of Jack Blackie, but more restrained. I don't remember Adrian Brody much at all. 
So I guess we'll find out whenever we get to that. So I'm I'm interested to see, like you just said, like the 1976 version or the the 70s version, the 2005 version, and just seeing their take on this. Because I know that in terms of the the arc, the beats, like the things that King Kong does, they're all similar in the new version. I just don't remember what the spin is or like why they like the modern take or whatever. Yeah, and and because the sexual politics and the race relations are so vastly different between the 30s and the 70s and the 70s and the 21st century, and those are such big elements of the film, I'm interested to see how that evolves. Anyway, uh, so King Kong shows up, and it's a giant monkey. Yeah, Spoilers. (laughs) They... They go back to the island to chase down Anne, who has been kidnapped, and Anne has been kidnapped by the tribesmen who are using her to attract King Kong, because King Kong, apparently, they leave a woman out on just the other side of the wall, tie her by each arm to a column, and King Kong emerges from the woods and takes the woman away, much to the delight of the horrible racist stereotypes in attendance. The crew from the boat, Denim and Driscoll and all of them, manage to sneak through the gate while the tribe is freaking out over King Kong taking Anne into the jungle. And thus begins their trek into uh, some sort of prehistoric wonderland. And this is where the movie kind of gets crazy. I didn't know any of this when I saw the new King Kong, and so I was expecting it here sort of. But not only is this an island where King Kong exists, this gigantic ape, but there's also dinosaurs, like full-out, full-blown dinosaurs, like brontosaurs, T-Rex, stegosaurus, triceratops, everything is going on on this island. Like, it's like an island removed from time, and it's kind of crazy and amazing. Can we, can we, I guess now's the time we should talk about how incredible for the time the special effects are. You know, a lot of matte paintings, a lot of rear projection, the stop motion is amazing. The, the, the close-ups on his face, a lot is spoken about 2005 one, how they were able to portray emotions through his face, but they were able to do this with puppets and stop motion extremely well in the 1933 version as well. Just amazing special effects. Yeah, there are two versions of King Kong. They built a giant head and shoulders of him for close-ups, where every part of his face is articulated manually. And they have the stop-motion version for wide shots. And both of them, they are able to show, uh, I mean, it's limited, of course, but they're able to show emotion on his face in a way that you wouldn't expect them to be capable of at the time, Uh, not to mention the action. And the first beast that they come across is a uh, Stegosaurus, I believe, the explorers in the jungle, and they fight the Stegosaurus, and it pretty much looks seamless. I think the black and white helps. I think if it was color, it would look, it would have definitely looked a lot more uh, fake. But yeah, I was, I was incredibly impressed. The way that the camera moves throughout the Stegosaurus scene is what was mind blowing to me because a lot of special effects at this time, especially involving stop motion and Wills O'Brien, amazing work. Eventually a guy named Ray Harryhausen would go on to work for him. Kind of the start of the big, Special effect was, I mean, the seeds were here. But yeah, usually it's static and stuff is happening and the camera is static. Here, the camera is moving with the cast of sailors 
as they move towards and around the Stegosaurus. I was blown away that they were able to do it at the time. I can only imagine what it must have been like in 1933 to see this. It's it still looks good. Like it's still it's not like you know all the Ray Harryhausen things. You see it and like you, I guess you could if you wanted to. You could groan, but also if you think about it, you know his stuff from the 50s or even this from like the 30s. You know it still holds up. Like it's still enjoyable and watchable today, which is crazy because this movie is 83 years old. Like this is nuts, and it's still enjoyable. And you know it doesn't look like it would look today, but it still looks good and still enjoying and engaging to watch and i'm still not even sure how they did some of the special effects that they did like when king kong was carrying her and then he puts her down like on a log and she's just suddenly like it's the actress in the screen you know what i mean like i'm sure that's like a simple trick now but i'm not sure how they did that and like that's 80 years like it's just it, it still blows my mind they call it the magic of filmmaking for a reason at the time a lot of this was i mean kind of sleight of hand and misdirection um, when she's initially on the sacrificial altar, there's a scene where she she falls down when she removes herself and out of frame, and then Kong picks up a stop-motion version of her, things like that. I know people always want to talk about how uh, CGI is, is terrible and, and it doesn't feel right, but, I mean, there is honestly something magical about the thought and the care that had to go into people rigging something that had never been done before. I expected to go into this movie and laugh a little bit at how cheesy it was, but no, it still holds up, and shit, these scenes are brutal. People get smashed over the next 20 minutes of this movie. Like I was saying before about the gate and the wall and how like hundreds of people actually had to go into uh, the work of designing and building this. Someone came into a room full of people and said, we need to make an ape pick up a woman and fight a tyrannosaur, and we need to have a bunch of guys kill a stegosaurus. Make it happen. And nowadays, if someone went into a room and said that, they'd be like, all right, let's get on our computers. But these guys, they had to create ways to do these things. They didn't just have to do these things. They had to figure out how in the world it could be done and then do it. So, yeah, so the explorers, they fight and kill a stegosaurus. And I was thinking at the time, like, they just shoot at it with guns yep. uh, because they don't know any better. They're just like, it's a wild animal. We're going to shoot it with guns. But what's weird is that the, the guns work. Like, they just kill, like, they kill the stegosaurus or they knock it down at least. And then I guess not content that they actually killed it. They shoot it again in the foot. The stegosaurus gets back up and they shoot it back down again. But, like, their little bullets actually are effective. This is also the first sighting of the gas grenade. They do put down the stegosaurus initially with the gas grenade. And then just, just they finish it off at point-blank range. They just, they put it down like it's old yeller. Yeah, it's really kind of sad. Especially the melancholy way that it flaps its tail one last time before it dies. <laughs> and then the, the scene where they're floating down the river and the... The river dinosaur just wipes out their canoe. Like, amazing. Really cool stuff. I don't know. Like, is that a brontosaurus or is that like, it's kind of like a Loch Ness monster, sort of. It kind of looks like a brontosaurus. Do we know specifically what that is or just a river dinosaur? I mean, I guess technically it's a brontosaurus, which, I mean, is a herbivore. But for the purposes of this movie, every dinosaur eats people. In 1933, the knowledge of dinosaurs was... Um shaky at best so yeah it's a brontosaur asterisk 
So there is, right after this Brontosaurus battle, there is this deleted scene or a lost scene that I watched on the Blu-ray, and it's called The Spider Pit. And so this is where in the movie it happens. Did either of you see this part or no? Well, all right, some background on this. What happened was they initially filmed this, but they decided, A, it was too brutal. B, it slowed down the pace of the movie too much. And so they actually destroyed the footage. And what's on the DVD is actually Peter Jackson uh, attempting to recreate it in the style of the time based on the storyboards. The actual footage is, it's probably one of the greatest, like, lost treasures of film ever. Yeah, they, they say it was destroyed. It is crazy. Like, it's, I think, I don't know that it necessarily slows down the pace. I mean, it might because we talked about how well it moves along. But it is, it is brutal. Like, it is crazy violent. It happens when they're on that log, the King Kong, like, shakes them off the log into that, like, crevasse, like that ravine, and they all fall, you know, 30 or 40 feet, and then just, like, land on the ground, and you think that they die, and then in the movie, without that scene, they just go on, you'd, like, never cut back to those guys again, but in the spider pit scene, those guys didn't die from falling, they all get up and shake, shake the dust off or whatever, and then they wake up, and there's like a huge lizard dinosaur and a giant crab and a giant spider and another what? lizard and sort of like this like scorpion sort of thing. And they are all getting messed up and they are all like destroyed. And then one of the lizard dinosaurs starts to climb up a vine to the one guy, I don't remember his name, who survives sort of that King Kong attack and he's hiding underneath like that little yeah, that's, overpass. that's Driscoll. That's Driscoll. And so the dinosaur is climbing up to get Driscoll up this vine, and Driscoll just takes that knife that he stabs King Kong with and just cuts the vine, and the dinosaur falls down. But it's like three extra minutes, and it's so like it's more violent than anything else in the movie, and it's crazy. Like I love that scene, and I wish that it was in the actual movie. Yeah, wow. it's it's available on YouTube. I just found it and skimmed through it. They You get some real ragdoll physics, like literally, in this movie, and I think the guys just falling down and splatting at full force is a little more effective than another batch of giant uh, animals. But yeah, I mean, I mean, looking at it from the recreation, it's uh, any lost footage from this movie is a crime. And it had been cut and re-released so many times due to code stuff that the, the movie that we watched actually wasn't shown until 1970. Um, a bunch of stuff like Kong stepping on a guy, um, the brontosaurus ragdolling the guy in his mouth, and I believe Kong munching on anyone. That was all cut and not added back to the movie until uh, the 70s. I'm pretty sure that when it premiered, the code was not in effect. So they were able to show it for a little while, at least, in its full glory. But as soon as the code came into effect, you can you can see a list. Like you said, you mentioned a few things from that list that they had to cut out. And most of them were monsters actually putting people in their mouths and a few things that happened later. So we're up to the point where the crew meets up with King Kong and King Kong knocks most of them into a crevasse where they may or may not have been eaten by scorpions and spiders. Driscoll is hiding out in a cave nearby. And once everyone is dead, once King Kong is assured that everyone's dead, Denim pops out out of nowhere and he's like, Driscoll, <laughs> Driscoll hi. I managed to hide from the monsters. Let's get out of here. The movie does a good job of sort of killing off the extras. Like, it's not afraid of letting King Kong just mess some dudes up. 
but the guys that we know their names, they're not going to be killed off on screen, just you know, shaken off a lot. Like if they're going to die or something's going to happen to them, like in which they don't, but like it's going to go out in a big way. So I think I I love that you know it's still something that happens today in movies where the lesser characters, even people that you've seen in like every scene, if you don't know their name, they're probably not going to make it in a movie like this. We uh we missed the great King Kong T Rex fight. Because this, yeah. this is one of the first times that we see that Kong is very protective of Anne. Because um, the T-Rex starts sniffing around and Kong, Kong gets in his face like a, like a drunk frat boyfriend at a bar. And uh, beats, the, <laughs> beats the absolute shit out of this T-Rex. Today, I, I'm excited to see this in the 2005 one. Because I think this could be over-choreographed, over-the-top ridiculous. This feels like two animals fighting. Also has like some vestiges of like modern mixed martial arts in there. There's a straight up judo throw and a King Kong rear naked choke in this fight. And uh, <laughs> this fight is great. It's brutal. It doesn't go on too long. And I mean, yeah, I didn't expect this level of brutality in this movie. I'd completely forgotten about all of this. And uh, I loved every second of it. I love the pacing of it. Like they're fighting, but there's also like moments where they're just standing there staring at each other. And if you've seen, you know, dogs or whatever fight, you know what I mean? Like, you, they, they're not always going at it. They're just sort of, you know, catching their breath and, like, you know, sort of just intimidating. And what's really kind of cool about it is that it's a static shot, and you see Anne up on up atop her log, like, on her little perch, and they knock that over. But, like, the, this camera is just focused, and you're just watching these two things go at it, and it's great. Yeah, and the whole time I was thinking, like, Frame by frame, this was done with stop motion. Like, the amount of craft that went into this fight is is amazing. Not only to choreograph a fight like this, but to make it happen between these two miniatures, uh, especially with the technology of the time. I read somewhere that the, the materials used to make the models would melt under the hot lights of the studio. And they would have to, like, almost rebuild the models every 20 minutes. The amount of care that went into this is just amazing. And the fight is so brutal. And it, and it's definitely, like, I think something, again, I haven't seen the 2005 version of it. But I feel like it would be more showy. It would be more like Hollywood. But this is like how you would expect two animals to fight. And he ends up killing the T-Rex by just cracking his jaw. And that just, oh my God. What's really cool about it is that when, the, when they go up to the dinosaur later, like the, the jaw is still like pulsing blood. And even though it's in the background, and I'm sure that they have a lot of, you know, stuff shot in the foreground and then digitally or not digitally, but cinematically placed in front of the background. Like I know it's sort of two different things like a composite. But like, just see him like walking up to it and having like the blood pulse out of the mouth, like it's great. I love it. Yeah, and it, when after Kong makes off for Skull Mountain with Anne, and Driscoll is walking past the T Rex, like you said, the blood is coming out of his unhinged jaw, but you see his his chest expanding as if he's still alive. And even though you know that it's a rear projection that Driscoll is not in the shot, I'm like. Keep going! Walk faster! <laughs> He's still alive, for Christ's sake! And I, I didn't think I would have that kind of visceral reaction to a movie that was made in 1933, but there it is. Kong acts like an animal. I mean, we talked about how animalistic the fight is, but even after the fight, 
like he's like playing with his his prize almost. There's a point where he just kind of flops around. I think it happens multiple times. He kind of pokes and prods at what he's killed to like partially like see that it's dead and like partially try to figure out why it's not fighting anymore because he's you know an animal and maybe doesn't quite understand death. And it's just these little moments of of characterization for this animal that sets it apart so much from not just the dinosaurs in this movie, but really any monster that had been in a film up until this point. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely true that they imbibe him with, with a lot more personality than just some inhuman beast. Although he is a beast. I mean, they go out of their way and, you know, at this point there's something I was thinking about. I feel like perhaps King Kong was sort of used as sort of a reflection of black people yep. by the the white filmmakers. You know, this sort of racist view of black people. He's he's simple, he's savage, he loves white women, but at the end he doesn't really know any better. I mean, um, he's brought to America on a boat in chains. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's the whole it's that whole scene or that whole sort of joke in that one scene in Inglorious Bastards where they're playing that card game in the basement and they're trying to figure out who he is. And like he describes exactly the plight of the black man in America. And it's like, oh, I'm not that. I must be King Kong. And it absolutely is a metaphor. And, you know, you go watch this movie and enjoy it for the creature feature it is. Or if you think about it on a deeper level, it gets real depressing real fast. Yeah, and it definitely his his close association with these stereotypical tribesmen is sort of what made me think about it. I mean, and, and here we start to see his first moments of romance in the biggest like scare quotes possible um, with Anne as as he uh, is, you know takes her back to the cave is protective of her. Uh, she passes out, and he kind of like starts to take her clothes off, which is uh, an odd scene, but it's not done in a it's hard to talk about this as like a gorilla human romance, but like <laughs> it's not done in a creepy, gross way. It turns from him being a monster to him being a sympathetic animal. Yeah, this is definitely the moment where you really see his humanity. He starts to remove her clothing, not in a in a creepy way, but just because he doesn't know any better. He's just sort of accidentally picking it off. One thing, one thing that I like, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit different than what we were just talking about, but it's something that I noticed or that happened to us a couple of times in Cage Club, I think, is that we're so invested in King Kong and Anne and him fighting dinosaurs and him falling in love with Anne that we sort of forget that there's the ship and there's, there's the people on the ship and they're still concerned with the natives and they're talking about how like the gunpowder keeps the natives away. And like, there's this whole other conflict that the movie does not pay attention to but it's almost, it's not as fascinating because, I mean, nothing's as interesting as a 30-foot tall or 40-foot tall whatever ape. But there's this whole other conflict that the movie could be paying attention to that we check back in on around this time. We're just like, oh, right, like there's other stuff happening here. Like, at some point soon, they need to get out of there. Otherwise, they might not get out of there. Yeah, and uh, after a brief fight with a uh, pterodactyl, Driscoll finally decides to show his dumb ass back up and... Uh... <laughs> assist Anne in escaping, who was already about to climb down the vine anyway, but he assists her in climbing down uh, down a vine. It's a pretty cool uh, scene where they're climbing down and Kong is pulling the vine back up. So as they were attempting to escape, they're getting closer and closer um, to what they are escaping from, which is uh, 
something that's kind of been repeated a lot, I feel like, but I wonder if this is the first instance of that. Yeah, definitely a, a lot of tension in the scene. They're, they're climbing down over the edge of a cliff, and Kong grabs the vine and starts pulling them back up, and it's like, how are they going to get out of this? I was really on the edge of my seat. Again, I could not believe that a movie from the 30s was filling me with this sort of visceral emotion. And they dive into a pond. Anne and Driscoll make it back to the gate. And they're going to seal up the gate. And Denim is there. And he's like, well, we need, you know, we need Kong. And how are we going to get Kong? We need to put her back on the other side of the wall to get Kong to come back. And they're like, no, 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 he's already coming back. But, like, that's the moment where we see that Denim does not give a shit about anyone as long as he gets. He's like, he's like, we came to this island and we didn't get any good footage. We didn't get, you know, it was nighttime when we first showed up and we didn't get the big dance and everything. Like, we need to something. We need to capture Kong. Which I know that you want to be protective of your people, but also, like, if you did take a boat trip out there financed by someone you better come back with some footage. You know what I mean? After everything she's been through, like she was... Sure, she was, sure. She was kidnapped by an ape. She witnessed a, a Tyrannosaurus fight. She was almost killed by a snake in a cave. She was almost killed by a, a pterodactyl. At this point, I'm like, this is going to be the most awkward boat ride home because when she gets back, she better be suing them for all their worth. But as soon as she gets back with, with Driscoll, Denim is like, we need to put her back out there because we need Kong. But it turns out they don't need to do that because Kong is already on his way back. And he busts down the gate and goes on this rampage through the village. I definitely thought this was going to be the moment where Denim becomes a bad guy. And I, I was kind of relieved to see that that wasn't the case, that this was just his moment of desperation where he cracked a little bit. And uh, actually, he ends up more heroic in this scene than uh, than douchebag Driscoll. Yeah, like, look, I'm not saying that, you know, he's right to want to put her back in danger, but I'm just saying he's sort of got a little bit of justification for wanting to get footage. I don't, I don't want to put Anne back in danger at all, but I can see, you know, you spend all this time, all this money getting over here, you better have something to film. <laughs> and yeah, so Kong busts through the wall and causes havoc in the village. And a lot of great scenes here, a lot of great special effects here of him eating people, fighting off people, throwing spears at him, knocking down houses. The way that the stop motion Kong interacts with the live action villagers in this is, is very impressive. There's that baby that's just sitting in the middle of the pathway. It's sort of, I guess, reminiscent of Battleship Potemkin, I think, where the baby carriage is going down the stairs and he just wants somebody to save that baby and King Kong is coming up and he almost smushes that baby with his fist until somebody runs through the scene and picks up the baby and saves it. But it's this like little terrifying moment of like that baby might die because you know who knows what's going on here. Yeah I mean the movie shows it is not pulling punches. I uh I couldn't help but laugh a little bit at the scene where he steps on one of the villagers because that was not a composite. You know that they just had that poor bastard laying face down in a bunch of mud, and they were they were lowering a giant metal foot onto his back. And I just yeah. think about like the safety protocols at the time, and just what that guy must have been going through for those couple of shots. Not fun. You see 
one of the one of the more featured natives is a woman, the mother of the baby who was in the path of King Kong, and she's seen prominently in a few other scenes. Her name is Etta McDaniel. She is the sister of the first black Academy Award winner, Hattie McDaniel, who was uh, from Gone with the Wind. Yeah. So they make it to the beach. King Kong bursts out of the jungle. The crew is there. Anne is there. Driscoll and Denim are there. They chuck a gas bomb and knock King Kong out. And then they chain him up and bring him back to America as the eighth wonder of the world. And what I liked was that at the very start of the movie, in that sort of theatrical introduction that you were saying earlier, Larson, they bill him like as an actor. You know, they're like, and King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Like he's this actual actor. You know what I mean? Like it just, it's cool. And like they, this is sort of the, the fulfillment of the role that he was meant to play. He'll be out for hours. Send to the ship for anchor chains and tools. What are you going to do? I'll build a raft to float him to the ship. Why, the whole world will pay to see this. No chains will ever hold that. We'll give him more than chains. He's always been king of his world, but we'll teach him fear. We're millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you. Why, in a few months, it'll be up in lights on Broadway. Kong, the eighth wonder of the world! And, and I was actually surprised at how sudden... We don't see how they get him back to the ship. That's what I was wondering. It's like, how are they going to get this giant ape not only to fit on the ship, but how are they going to get him out to the ship? Well, we don't have to worry about that because we're all of a sudden on opening night in New York City. That was apparently some uh, brilliant screenwriting ideas from the wife of the screenwriter. He could not figure out how they would transport Kong. And she was just like, who cares? Don't show it. And <laughs> it's it's correct, I think. I think we've moved at such a good clip already that a scene of him like sleeping in the cargo hold of the ship like who cares like just let's just get to the next part and i think that again restraint is part of why this movie works so well and feels like it's moving so well is they uh they cut out all the stuff that we don't need to see in our giant monkey smashes things movie knowing nothing going into this i expected most of the film to be about kong wreaking havoc in new york city and that's reserved for the last 20 minutes or so part of that is because Audiences wanted to see a jungle picture. They wanted to see adventures in a jungle because they knew what New York City looked like. They don't know what a jungle looks like. You had to be a big shot to see a jungle back in the day. Uh, And that's why people went to the movies, to see movies about jungles, because they wanted to see what they couldn't normally see. But it it was more compelling for me to see him in this New York City environment. I feel like modern audiences would be more interested in seeing destruction in a city than in a jungle. But anyway, yeah, so here we are, opening night, and there are crowds lined up to come see King Kong. Well, I was saying, they're sort of like internet commenters. Like, they're so snarky that they're all just like, oh, this better be something good. I have to pay $20 to see this thing. Oh, it's just going to be a gorilla? Like, there's already enough gorillas in the city. I don't need to know what's going on here. (laughs) And everybody's so bitter and angry going into this thing. Like I was saying earlier, nobody in this movie is happy at all about anything. That they're about to see something in this massive theater billed as the eighth wonder of the world that even if it's not, you know, mind-blowing, the spectacle should be there. But nobody that we see, and we hear from like four or five people going in, 
nobody's even remotely excited. They're all just like, no, oh, this is going to suck. It's a contextual thing, I think. At the time, we were still pretty... Uh, we hadn't moved completely away from vaudeville, and, you know, P.T. Barnum's kind of shtick was still going on at the time this movie would come out. So I, I think that idea of, like, this kind of scam stage patter larger than life kind of thing, I think that was more prevalent at the time. I think it makes sense in the context of 1933. There's an old woman in the audience, and she's like, when does the movie start? And the usher is like, uh, it's more of a uh, personal appearance and she's like, oh, I wanted one of those wildlife movies that he does. Oh, well, <laughs> and she says, well, I never, which, you know, is one of those classic lines. And, you know, the usher rolls his eyes and then they uh, they go backstage and Denim is there with with Driscoll and Anne. And Anne, I can't believe Anne is like not on the other side of the country from this ape. Why would she ever want to have anything to do with this situation at all? But they're backstage and they're ready for their uh, ready for their close up. And Kong is displayed in the same way that Anne was displayed for Kong. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here tonight to tell you a very strange story. A story so strange that no one will believe it. But ladies and gentlemen, seeing is believing. And we, my partners and I, have brought back the living proof of our adventure. An adventure in which 12 of our party met horrible death. And now, ladies and gentlemen, before I tell you any more, I'm going to show you the greatest thing your eyes have ever beheld. He was a king and a god in the world he knew. But now he comes to civilization, merely a captive, a show to gratify your curiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, look at Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. And yeah, there was an awe from the audience, and then in a scene that a uh, young Frankenstein would brilliantly parody about 50 years later, uh, the flashbulb set him off and he breaks free. He starts freaking out uh, as soon as he sees Driscoll and Anne together. And that's when they start freaking out. But the, the flashbulbs are what really do it. And that was the first time when I was like, of course, he's going to be freaked out by all of this. Like he's ne he lived in a jungle his whole life. All of this stuff is completely new and alien to him. There were no flashing lights in the jungle, buildings, cars, crowds of people. This is all completely new to him. And, and it's another reason why you have to kind of sympathize with him. Well, I think one of the themes in this movie kind of is the dangers of, I guess, I don't, I don't know necessarily I want to call it cultural tourism, but like, it seems to, to be a warning against people going places that are dangerous just for sport, just to see them, just to be excited about it. Because it, it is an inverse kind of here with like, like to all of these white people, Kong is just as exotic as Anne was to these racist African tribal caricatures who offered six women for, for the blonde princess. And yeah, I think that's a rolling theme throughout this movie, maybe even more so than the really ham-fisted beauty killed the beast one. 
So Khan goes on a rampage through New York City, and it's pretty impressive. Like, I thought that the special effects of the jungle were impressive, but the part where he derails a subway train, he chews up a reporter, he grabs a reporter and, like, eats him up in his mouth. This is really intense and really great. And he starts climbing uh, a nearby building and he he reaches in and he grabs a woman and he pulls her out the window and he holds her out over the street. And it's a, a really great shot. He's holding this woman out in the air, like 50 stories above the ground. And they show the ground behind them. And it's you can he's holding her upside down, too. And then he sees that she's not Anne, and he just drops her to her death. I love that. That's my favorite thing that he does. He just, like, climbs up the building, just punches through a window, grabs this random woman, looks at her, like, nah, and just drops her. Like, it's the best. But that's a, <laughs> that's a total, like, just an animal move. Yeah. And then he goes up, and he just happens to find Anne, you know, the next window that he looks in as, like, the biggest peeping Tom in the world. But that first woman, just laying in bed, you have a giant ape just punch through your window, grab you out, just toss you aside. The best. The way that they show the plight of these people who are in Kong's path is a layer that I didn't expect and they didn't need to do. And again, it's another case of what sets this movie apart from its contemporaries was that they, they took that extra care and that extra step. Like you see the fear in these people in the subway car and that adds a whole nother level of terror to this. They make you watch that woman fall to her death. And that adds a whole nother level to it. And that's stuff that elevates this final rampage. And uh, Christian mentioned before he was surprised how short. It's only about 15 minutes that he's in New York. And I, I was surprised by this too. But stuff like this gives it so much more impact and makes it feel like a much longer finale and a much more powerful finale than it is. And then Driscoll, uh, because he's bitch-made and awful, gets knocked out while hitting Kong's hand with a chair. Just want to point that out. Driscoll, first of all, he ushers uh, Anne into the exact same building that Kong is climbing. Like, it wouldn't take that much research to figure out which building Kong is on right now. And he takes her up to her room in the building that Kong is climbing. And once Kong's arm, and this is a scene, I think it's been parodied several times, probably most notably on The Simpsons, but the arm comes in through the window and grabs her. And instead of just getting up and leaving the room, like which they probably both just could have walked out the door and moved to a place more central, Driscoll tries hitting the arm with a chair and gets knocked out in the process and he gets Kong. knocked the f out like he just picks up i don't understand why he thinks a chair is gonna work because the arm <laughs> is the size of the bed but he picks up a chair and like in the process of breaking it over his arm gets like thrown aside and is knocked out really for the rest of the movie right because he's the worst yeah he's the worst so kong goes off and uh takes Anne throughout the city there's noise, there's lights, he's he's completely freaked out. We cut to Driscoll in a police station, and there are reports coming in of where Kong is. Kong is uh Kong has reached the Empire State Building. He's now climbing up the Empire State Building. And they're like, Oh no, well once he climbs the Empire State Building, we're you know, 
there's no way we'll get him. But then they have the planes go, and just like the earlier, I guess they set the precedent earlier in the movie, little bit of bullets takes down a monster. You know what I mean? Like, they just, they don't shoot him that much. He's just like, oh, I'm going to die now. I don't know. I, I, I feel like every time one of the planes comes around and lays a, a bunch of machine gun bullets into him, you can tell that it's hurting him. It's not like the Stegosaurus. And and I think this is a testament to how well they're able to portray the emotions stop motion wise in his face. It's really sad. Like at this point, uh, you know, maybe it's the music, it's the look on his face, like even Anne and, and he manages to bring down one of the planes, right? Yeah. He grabs one by the wing and flips it over the side i remember when i when i saw the the posters for this movie and i saw you know king kong fighting the planes i was like there's no way this is gonna look good in 1933 there's no way they're gonna be able to make this look good but it looks as good as it could have been and when kong realizes he's dying he places Anne down on the roof and just falls off. Yeah, it's some great puppet acting. Um, the way that he progressively goes from fighting off the planes to kind of slumping over the top to holding on by like his fingertips and then eventually, and he doesn't just fall straight down because the Empire State Building, you know, is kind of tiered. He hits every like stair uh, of the building <laughs> on the way down. Just another level yeah. of brutality that this movie has. And people don't, like, you see the scale. Like now, with every movie, King Kong gets, like, exponentially larger until he's the size of, you know, eventually Godzilla and just standing over entire buildings. Like, Kong isn't that big compared to skyscrapers, so it's a long, long way down. It's it's a brutal death. It's, it, it is. It's, 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 it's tough to watch, and that's a lot on the, uh, the puppet acting. But you know, yeah. it wasn't airplanes. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. So well, all that, thing. That, that tumble down was not the airplane's fault. It was all Anne's fault. Well, I mean, she's well, a, that's oh, the thing. It's a woman in 1933. Of course it's a woman's fault. Kong is lying dead in the street, and there's a crowd gathered around him. And Denim comes out, and the police are like, are you uh, Denim? And he's like, yes, yes, that's me. And at this point, I'm thinking, they're going to arrest this guy. Like, he, he's re- pretty much responsible for all of this. And he's like, uh, so what happened here? And he's like, well, beauty killed the beast because it's her fault. And that's the end. Can you imagine that cop writing, like, taking the statement? It's like, he's writing the report. And he's like, cause of death, beauty. Uh, so any, uh, any other thoughts on King Kong, Joey? No, I think we've pretty much covered it. I mean, I'm I'm glad I was impressed by how quickly it moved, how well the special effects held up. I enjoyed this. Is it a movie that you guys would say is is up there with the the best of all time because it's constantly put on that list and um before today, just based on my memory of it, I would have said no, but man, going back and revisiting it, it it does something special. Kane, you know, Citizen Kane obviously always gets called the first movie with cinematography, but man, Kong might have beaten it there, honestly. It does some incredible things with the limitations it had. If you can get past the sexism and racism from the viewpoint of modern day, the stuff this movie was able to accomplish is incredible. And the story is is fantastic. 
it really is just an incredible, incredible piece of filmmaking, like in the old Hollywood style, stuff that you you just wouldn't see anymore. It's it's up there with the best movies ever made, and that's a little bit depressing because um, it's all downhill from here for Monkey Club. We're gonna go from <laughs> we're gonna go from King Kong to apes riding skateboards, and I feel like. Uh, <laughs> You know, the farther away we get from King Kong, the more my liver will have to be spoiled. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, but, I mean, we really I, started on a high note. I'm I'm sure there are a few legitimately good monkey movies sprinkled in there, but not a lot. It's Usually good. monkey movies are not synonymous with quality, but no. I hope you guys yeah. proved that wrong. And, and and sadly, this was not an actual uh, monkey. This was animatronic. Well, not. Was I, this Andy Circus that... in 1933? This was. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Andy Circus and uh, and Frank Welker have played every animal to ever be on film. Actually, I feel like I feel like there are there are three types of monkeys in monkey movies. There are the ones that are completely fabricated. There are the ones that are people in a monkey suit. And then there are the actual monkeys. And uh, so we started off with the first kind. And as we go on, we'll be able to compare and contrast which type we like better, uh, which which lends themselves to better films, the pros and cons to the different types of monkeys. So I'm I'm looking forward to this journey. And Chris, I'm glad you're taking this journey with me. And uh, and Joey, I'm glad that you took the first step in this journey with us. I'm honored to be along on the first step, and I'm looking forward to listening to every episode and hopefully watching every movie right alongside you guys. Well, if there's nothing else, uh, thank you for listening. I'm Christian Larson. I'm Chris Mattiello. And that was Joey Lewandowski. And thank you for joining us on the first episode of Monkey Club. For all things Monkey Club, as well as Cage Club, Keanu Club, and the Zack Attack, join us on cageclub.me, where you'll be able to read reviews, download podcasts, make sure to listen to us on iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe. Oh, yes. We also have a Facebook page, Cage Club Podcast Network. You can look that up. And maybe a Twitter coming up soon. Who knows? Whoa. The sky's the limit. Bye-bye, everybody.
I mean, well, you don't feel anything like that about me, do you? 